Welcome to Season 2 of Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. This season is dedicated to interviews with mayoral and city council candidates running for the city of Powell River within the Cothed region during the 2022 municipal election. Here's your host, Aaron Reed. Welcome to Coastal Currents. I'm your host, Aaron Reed. Joining me in the studio for this episode is Cindy Elliott. Cindy is running for re-election for city councillor in the October 15th election. Here is Cindy's submission. Family and community are important to me. I have five children ranging from age 11 to 33 and five grandchildren. They all live here in the Cothat region. I am very committed to this community, both now and in the future. My family, Father Jack and my siblings, own and operate Jack's Boatyard in Lund. I have lived in this region since 2007 when I moved to live, work, and be closer to my family. While working with Jack's Boatyard, I was a project manager for our waterfront expansion and development and a lift operator lifting boats. Prior to that, I had a career that included the following jobs. Regional Economic Development Officer for the province of BC in the northwest area of the province. Acting Aboriginal Relations Manager for the BC Ministry of Forests in the Prince Rupert Forest Region. Treaty Officer, Ministry of Forests, Prince Rupert Region, EMAFA for BC Ambulance Service in Stewart, BC, Aboriginal Relations Manager for Alberta Environment, Central Region in Red Deer, Alberta, and Financial Manager for my husband's logging businesses from 1996 to 2007. I have been a City Councillor since November of 2018, and my portfolio includes Arts, Culture and Heritage, Social Action and Planning, Affordable Housing, City Liaison to Community Futures Development Corporation, Western Stillwater and Island Timberlands Community Advisory Group Liaison Appointee. Please join me in welcoming Cindy Elliott. So welcome Cindy Elliott to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Erin. Thank you for coming. To start off with everybody, I asked them if they could tell me a little bit about themselves, you know, where they grew up, how growing up was, that kind of thing. I enjoyed the process of growing up. I thought it was a lot of fun. I lived in a little tiny town called Kitwanga in northern British Columbia. It's Gixan territory. Okay. Some of my ancestors are Gixan and some of my ancestors are European. So I'm from a mixed bag. Uh, some of me has been here 10,000 years and some of me have been 10,000 years over in Europe. So. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been on this planet a long time. So I guess I'm a walking, talking Canadian with uh, a lot of uh, relationships that have gone, you know, linked all all around. Right. So we had horses. My mom gardened a lot. My father is uh, involved in mining and forestry and all kinds of things. So we were resource dependent family growing up, like many people in British Columbia. Yeah. When I graduated high school, I was graduated at a terrace, which is a bigger town. We didn't have a grade twelve in my town. Oh. <laughs> So, um, we, um, Caledonia Senior High in 1986. Okay. Went to, I was 17 at the time, went to university, did a degree at UVic for economics. That must have been a shift from Northern BC to UVic. Oh, yes. So, I grew up in this teeny tiny town where everybody knows everybody, and I went to the city, and it was radically different, but I so enjoyed the experience. I had an amazing time at university. And then coming right out of university, I was hired by the BC government, like way back in 1992. 
Wow. Okay. Um, I was going to go to law school. I'd written my LSAT and everything, but then the BC government offered me a really nice job as a economic develop regional economic development officer. So I went back up north and did that. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> I was doing economic development all over the northwest of British Columbia. I had amazing communities. We did um, art and marketing up in Atlin and did uh, wilderness tourism marketing in Good Hope Lake and... Um, we had amazing uh, interactions with the Toltan Nation Development Corporation and in Dees Lake, and I got to drive that crazy road out to Telegraph Creek and <laughs> talk to those folks. <laughs> uh, the NISCA Treaty was getting finalized around about that time, so we were involved in NISCA Treaty implementation, and then the government changed. Oh, okay. So we, um, all of us got fired. Oh. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> and the Dalgamut court case had just come out right around 96. It was when the transition happened. So they grabbed up all us folks who had been making great relations in the communities to work in the Ministry of Forests. Because after Dalgamut, there was this huge push to consult without much policy in, in mm-hmm. place. Okay. So I went to the Ministry of Forests and I did um, Aboriginal relations and uh, used my community relationship skills to do consultation on forestry activities. And um, I shifted from the management job over to treaty issues officer, which is a union position, because um, they brought me over, slid me straight over as a manager in government, but then I had to compete for my job. Oh. And actually, this is interesting. The lady that won the job I was in, her name is Linda Robertson, and she was a uh, person from Powell River. No kidding. Yep. And we were up in Smithers at the time. <laughs> so I became great friends with Linda Robertson, and she married a Powell River boy, and they live up in Smithers now. <laughs> oh, how about that? <laughs> yeah. So she was doing the treaty, ad- or sorry, the First Nations advisor position here, or liaison, or whatever they were called back then, for the Forest Service here in Powell River. And she had applied for that position as well, and she won the position. I had um, just come off my mat leave, and I wasn't quite doing a good job of that interview when I had it. So I lost that position, and they found a new one for me. We we had, uh, I competed for a treaty, treaty position instead, and we were implementing NISCA treaty. We were doing interim measures attached to treaties. And then I also got to chair this amazing process with the Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chiefs for the Bulkley LRMP planning process. Really? Yeah. Holy cow! So that I mean, and that went really well. We um, we got uh, Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chiefs sign off on our final LRMP plan. It's the only one in the province that ever had that. Wow! So what so. transitioned you out of that? Um, the Prince Rupert Forest region got cancelled. Oh, it got amalgamated into the Northern Forest region, and I was also at the time running all of the business end of my husband's logging business, which was struggling because of downfalls in the forest economy. So I ended up taking a buyout at the time when they canceled the forest region because they were looking for people to do that at the time. And I wanted to spend a little more time with my family, and I wanted to help my husband with his business because it was really hard logging back then. Mm. And... Um, we did that for a few years, and we decided to phase out of being owners of a logging company. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> uh, then I grabbed a job out of Alberta, and uh, I went over there, and I was their Aboriginal Relations Manager for the Alberta Environment. 
because they'd had a court case with the Mikasu Cree that they had lost. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and they had no consultation policy, nothing. Like, oh, I already did this. We we made some policy out in BC. And they said, yeah, come on over here and help us. So they had three-year term positions where they hired expensive managers to come help them create some policy, teach the staff, and we were supposed to, you know, work our way out of a job. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So we did that, and uh, <laughs> while I was there, we dealt with the oil spill on the Wadman Lake with the Paul First Nation. We did uh, traditional use studies for Sun Child and other First Nations, the Ochis, Paul First Nation. Um, the Pinocchio area had all of the Hobima First Nations in there, and I got to create relationships with them and work on the Battle River water management plan that they were doing at that time. Um, we were doing consultation on all the major projects in Alberta, which was very busy at the time. It was, like, exploding population-wise. I think I moved into Red Deer. It was 70,000 people two years later. When I left, it was 86. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. It's just, just this huge explosion of people. So I, I've been in this situation before. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Powell River's kind of doing that. And so then when that job ended... Um, the contract ended on that one. It was a term position. The um, oil companies in Alberta were interested in people who had been working on those policies within the government working for them. They would wanted me to go to Calgary and work for them for lots of money. My husband at the time says, look, if we stay here in Alberta, I'm going to die. I just, you know, I can't handle it. I need to go back to the ocean. <laughs> I get that. Because he was, he was from Stewart originally. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, up on the ocean, northern very tiny yeah i said well we can't just go to bc with no job it's very expensive over there so someone has to job if have a job if we're gonna go over there so he picked up his bootstraps and stuck on his lug and gear and went to pal river and how he gave him a job <laughs> and he said here i am and this is where you want to be because your family's here and i said okay and so i turned down my big six-figure job in calgary and came to bell river and that was 2007 Wow. That was my next question was going to be, how did you get back to Powell River? So your family was already here. Yeah. So my family owns uh, my dad and my sisters and all my brothers and everybody were here. They, we have uh, Jack's Boatyard in Lund. We lift boats out of the water, put them on the land. People work on their boats and then we put them back in. <laughs> Sometimes we store them for the winter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty good business model. I've got to watch the process a couple times with my husband's boat, and it's uh, it's pretty cool watching them crown out of the water, because the, you always wonder how to get those big boats out, right? It's pretty cool. So when I came here in 2007, I, I learned how to, I, I just kind of bummed around for the first eight months. <laughs> <laughs> then I went to work at the boatyard, and I learned how to run the boat lift and do all kinds of things around the boatyard, and they put me in charge of figuring out how to get, you know, proper leases commercial lease for the waterfront because my dad had a personal one because he didn't know he was going to have a business there it just um, kind of evolved from the things they put down there yeah so i got us real commercial leases and i applied for our waterfront development and we rebuilt our waterfront and i got permits from dfo and we did you know how when you fill in the intertidal zone and you have to have no net loss on your on your habitat? Yeah. I created a project where we put rock in a bay that's just slightly south of us over top of an old log dump. We call it Mary Tyler Bay. It's just that little dip just south of Lund Harbor. Okay, yeah. 
There used to be an old log dump in there, and the whole bottom of the ocean's covered with woody debris, and none of the animals can live there. And we put a big rock reef on it, and it's just oh, cool. alive with fish and oh, that's and awesome growth. And yeah, it looks amazing. The uh, local divers tell me it looks great now. Awesome. <laughs> so after that was done in 2013, and I worked there for a little while, I adopted a couple little boys, which were my cousin's kids. And they needed to be in town, and I couldn't live in London anymore. So I moved in 2018 into town. Okay. And since I was in town, I decided to run for office. (laughs) And lo and behold, people decided to vote for me, so I thank them very, very much. And I've been a city councillor now for four years. It's quite a learning curve, isn't it? It is, and it was totally complicated by the pandemic of course right so i'd not been in office before and so i was trying to learn how it was supposed to be and then we had to completely different new remote business models show up right it was new to everybody so i guess we were all on the same footing then exactly (laughs) here's adaptation figure it out right yeah (laughs) so anyway it took some of the fun out of it too though yeah and i i you know, I, I tried my best to be very compassionate through the whole thing. I, I realize everybody's, you know, just hurting out there. I had a really hard time myself. Both my kids are special needs. And when we all had to stay home and nobody could go to school and I didn't, and all my inclusion supports and all the th- people that used to help me weren't able to help me for months on end, it it was very, very difficult for me. I couldn't go to work, couldn't leave my house and yeah that would and I had just me and my two boys who really needed you know without any of the sport systems that I rely on to keep me sane <laughs> oh, I couldn't even imagine to be honest so um, I'm really happy that part's over and I I don't I hope that never happens again yeah no that's fair absolutely fair what neighborhood do you live in within the city Cranberry so they built some certified green duplexes right across from the curling rink on cranberry street yeah. just past magpies between magpies and the park yeah <laughs> the very first building built there is unit one and two i'm on the red side <laughs> oh okay awesome so that's where i am good what made you decide to move there i'm thinking the green part has some some play well at the time people's hydro bills were going through the roof and I didn't want to, so my, my husband and I had gotten a divorce in 2014, which would have been, and I, you know, wasn't really enjoying the, being the mom of the special needs kids and doing lawn work. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so I sold out of my really big lawn in Lund, I get, sold it back to my family, because they owned the land that it was on anyway. But. Yeah. And I bought a place that had, you know, I expected to have no maintenance with a new home warranty, um, no yard, but beside a park, so my kids would still have somewhere to play. Smart. Someone else would mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, the uh, the I, and it, I curl. So oh, I, I thought I could walk to the curling rink. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it would be energy efficient, which I really, um, I quite want to be low impact on the planet, and I want to leave things better than how I found them, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought if I could have, you know, the solar panels on the roof and a net zero home, it's, it's like step five or something. <laughs> it says, because it's certified green. Okay. I, I was really, you know, supportive of that idea too. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's, that's good thinking. I like the park idea. That's good. Good thought. Except I couldn't have my ducks at the park. <laughs> well, they, 
you, you know, you can go down to um, Moat Bay, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away. In fact, my one son rode his little bike down there almost daily in the summer. He would ride on down there and have a swim, and there's lots of geese down there. True. I don't like those ones. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not as friendly. They're not. <laughs> so, what are your favorite places to spend time in the city? Um, I do love Moat Bay. It's it's pretty amazing there. Um, I like most of the coffee shops because I'm kind of a coffee fanatic and coffee usually comes along with some wonderful friend that I get to talk to. Nice. <laughs> and uh, so I really enjoy that. I like going to the swimming pool in the rec center. I like the hot tub there. I like the backyards of my children. I, I have five kids. Oh, wow. Five grandkids. Wow. <laughs> So, you know, I, I enjoy spending time with my children. And my daughter, who lives in Wildwood, has, like, fantasy land yard for all the kids to play in. And so oh. we go there regularly and barbecue and things like that. And she has to mow the lawn. Good thinking. Shh. <laughs> 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 yeah. She's younger. <laughs> She'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah other candidates that have interviewed so far are first-time candidates you're the first one i'm interviewing that is going up for re-election yeah so what was your deciding factor on running again two things one is responsibility so the uh, decision to run in the first place was because i really enjoy community development i remember being that regional economic development officer working with communities and trying to you know do development work yeah um, so that was my initial decision to run. The learning curve was huge. Yeah. Most of the things that I learned along the way and want to contribute to, I think I am learned enough to maybe do it this time around. And I think that uh, the city has an, you know, been kind enough to vote me in and invested money in training me and getting me up to speed. And it takes a bit of time to become a good city councillor. It's not something you can do immediately. Yeah. So I feel responsible to take that investment and offer it at this term when I think I'll be most useful, like before you get worn out and tired of being there and, and after you've learned enough. I think I'm right in that sweet spot right now. Yeah. So I think it's, it's you know, wouldn't be fair to not run again, not fair to the city. Right. However, if they choose to not vote me in again, at least it wasn't because I didn't offer. Right. Right. So I'm doing my due diligence and stepping up and offering to take all that investment that they've put in me in, into me and and put it to their benefit right. is basically how I think about that. And then the other reason is because um, I have stuff I want to do, right? So mm-hmm. I, I there's things I was wanting to impact and I haven't managed to get there yet. So learning yeah. how is half the battle. Yeah. I mean, you didn't really get four years because COVID just, through a monkey wrench into everything and and I do think people don't really realize how big that learning curve is like I think people have a kind of predisposed idea of what it's like to step into these roles in government and I don't think you really know until you actually get your butt in the seat and and get the full picture and then yeah it's a big learning curve for sure totally agree yeah (laughs) yeah there's there's manuals, but I don't think they cover it properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the other th- one of the other things I think 
would be very helpful is better orientation for candidates before they even run. Yeah. So I participated actually this year in a, what we called a campaign school. Okay. So people who are interested in running could come and just ask us questions and what it's like and things we think are important and how to get out there. And I thought, uh, you know, thank you to Trina Isaacson who organized it, but it was an idea that I wanted to um, participate with and run with. And I was so happy she did that because uh, when I came in, we didn't have anything like that. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Yeah. So almost immediately upon being elected, you get sized up and put into a portfolio without any real ability to decide for yourself what's important to you because you don't know it's happening until it's done. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's your portfolio for the four years you're there. Wow. So it doesn't it doesn't change it's not something that tweaks every year sort of thing. It's a it's no, the full No, you're you're assigned at the beginning and you're, it's there for the full four years. Wow. And then here's the other part that's super important that that you don't quite understand is that they immediately organize strategic planning so that council has a strategic plan and agenda for the next four years. And if you aren't fully prepared with your strategic objectives when you go into that planning process, you miss the boat. You don't get to do that again either. Yeah. It's done. <laughs> yeah. And then, well, this time we had a pandemic that kind of got in the way of all of our strategic objectives anyways. So all of the playing in the strategic directions and the portfolio allocations and all of that stuff happens bang right at the um, beginning yeah so i think it's not fair to new incumbents coming in to not be briefed well in advance and be prepared to you know put their best foot forward and fight for what they want in those arenas yeah and I think it's it's much more benefit to the city to have people within a certain portfolio that feel strongly in that area or have knowledge in that area. That's definitely helpful. So yeah, and I agree with you. Um, in the by election for school trustee, I did a Zoom meeting for people to ask me questions because I felt the exact same way. I really had no idea when I ran. So these so. very important points that I've just brought up now. I freely offered up that information in the campaign school so that people who are new to the game would be coming in a lot more prepared than I was. Awesome. That's nice to do. So mentoring is important to me. It is. That's good. It's good, and it's important because it's, it's a funny thing. We get into this campaign mode for these roles, and technically everybody's competing against each other to get a seat. I mean, in this case, there's what two-thirds won't be elected but once you get in there you're a team you have to work as a team so it's kind of a funny process right like yeah compete and then become a team yeah what strengths do you feel that you have that are really useful in council chambers well i think that uh one of the things i bring to the table is the um ability to compartmentalize very very well (laughs) So there's an awful lot of really emotional stuff going on there. Yeah. And I'm able to participate in the emotions and have compassion and still think separately about the decisions about what's what's best. I always vote for what I think is best for the community. I've never been one for really giving in to peer pressure. So I think that's a strength when you're on a council. Yeah, for sure. But I'm also a team player. I'm not there to disrupt the team. And I'm... So if you can sell it to me and it makes sense to me, I trust my judgment and I'll go with it. 
And then even if it's a person that I don't normally agree with, if it's a good idea, I'll go with that. I don't hold grudges. I don't, I'm not bitter two minutes after we've dropped that subject, we're on to the next. We, you know, that one's done. Good. Um, I don't think that's how everybody is. I think we, if you want to be on a council and be very useful, though, you need to have your head in each and every issue when it comes up and not be worrying about the one that you just finished talking about. Yeah. Good. Which is funny because my next question is, <laughs> if you get that varied amount of people around the table, which as as a voter myself, that's what I want to see is a good variety of people, then conflict often arises. So how do you deal with conflict? Conflict is something I managed to find a lot of in my work life, uh, out in the jobs that I was doing, working with various communities and so forth. And so one of the things I did as my personal development is I did the Justice Institute's program on conflict resolution. Mm, okay. And I took the, you know, the negotiation specialist person, so the interest-based discussions and how to um, respect any, respect all of the interests at the table and identify where they're common and where they're not. So one of the first things I do when somebody's talking to me is find things I can agree with. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because if you're starting with what you agree on, you're going to be on much better ground than worrying about what you don't agree on. And so I don't, I don't feel the necessary pressure to be louder with what I disagree on. I think it's more important to be louder on what you agree on. And I think that that helps bring us all together as a team. This one's a little bit longer. Our youth aren't able to vote. However, they are an important part of our community. We have little for them to do outside of sports, arts, and outdoor activities. And many teens and young adults aren't into those things. Do you have any ideas of ways we can address the lack of spaces for teens and young adults to hang out and be better supported? That's a really good question. I actually, first of all, don't think that youth shouldn't be able to vote. I disagree with that fundamentally, right? So I think we should be lowering the voting age in municipal politics for a, a number of reasons. I think they're smart people. I think they deserve a voice in our local government. And I think um, most of the decisions we're making, they're the ones that have to wear them, not us, because we all get to get older and retire, and they got to live with what we've built for a city. Yeah. So I think, um, first of all, and I voted at UBCM on a resolution to lower the voting age at mun- for municipal elections, and I still think that's what we should do. So the municipality has um, the benefit of being able to create input polls that can include youth and I would do that so when we're asking for input from people I would lower the age of that input we're looking for I support our youth council and we'll fire up again and the youth council deals with high school kids and we had folks from the youth council go to Victoria and participate in mock government and all kinds of stuff so we're mentoring um, young people for governance and um, the youth council can bring delegations and motions to council we for UBCM okay so we uh, we we've supported a number of resolutions all the way to AVICC and UBCM from our youth council and some of them pass Awesome. Um, one of them was the resolution to lower the voting age, which we supported and brought forward. And, it, you know, it was pretty close. It didn't pass, but it was really close. So there's a lot yeah. of folks out there who think the same way as us. Maybe not a majority yet, but I think we're getting there. That's interesting because a few years ago that that passed strongly at uh, school trustees. Yeah, I, th- I think school trustees are smarter than... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I was terribly disappointed. I can't even understand why they, they wouldn't pass such a thing. But anyway. Yeah, I don't so, either. Um, because, you know, we can't be all things to all people. Um, and the schools have a lot of the funding for the out, outdoor spaces for people that age. My focus would be in... in advocating for and including young people in governance type activities as much as we can and making sure our consultation and input from community includes young people. And that one did actually come right from youth. So I did ask youth, uh, what would you ask candidates? And that was that was a big one. So they're like, we have nothing to do except go to Second Beach and party. Well, so. and, you know, we, we could... Uh, we could definitely use a process where they could tell us what would be helpful. And maybe we could try to fit building structures that would be useful to them. So I know that the skate park park, the bike park, um, those kinds of things were put there but at the suggestion of youth. Yeah. And they're not, you don't have to be on a team to do those. Yeah. So I, I'm fully in favor of building like a childcare center as well near our rec center and the rec center has some lands that are not completely full yet why don't we have like the youth council and a process of consultation with the youth to find out what are what are you interested in because i'm pretty sure they don't want me deciding what it is that's useful (laughs) to them (laughs) and the point would be to have a process that they would have a voice yeah not that i know best fair enough And have you read the 94 Calls to Action put out by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada? Absolutely. Awesome. But I don't remember them all. (laughs) There's a test. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I'm glad you've read them. Um, How do you think our city is doing with regard to truth and reconciliation? So I think um, the fact that we have a community core, which is pretty unique to us, is, is really good. Um, it's one of the reasons why we were able to start that conversation when the request for a name change came through. There's many people in the community that are pretty unsupportive of the idea, but the fact is we have a community accord, so we can't ignore the request. There's a community accord. It says, look, when we have governance issues that we don't agree on, we have a process set up that we've both, a government-to-government agreement that says we'll strike a committee and we'll decide how to handle it. So we did that. We had a joint working group. We um, put together some educational materials so the community could understand what the Klamen were asking for and why. Um, We had a bunch of sessions to try and get that message out there. We had sessions where people could talk about what they were learning. And we had some open mic sessions where people could tell us how they feel about that. And then the joint working group sort of that was fairly intense work that we did over about four or five months. We wrapped that all up in a report, and the report was the joint working group themselves came up with some recommendations based on everything they'd heard and what had gone on, on in the community. And we came to consensus on that joint work. So we had some city people. We had some um, folks from the the citizens of Powell River, citizens of Klohom, and we had a we had a designated elder. Uh, we had folks from the legislature, and and we sat down and came to consensus in that group, and it was tough because we didn't see III on everything. Right. For what those re- recommendations would look like, we have eleven recommendations. 
we're fully committed to carrying on the conversation and building more consensus in the community. So I think um, lots of folks in the community are very worried that uh, that the decision to make a, a name change is being done by this joint working group, but that's not how it works. The joint working group is, um, I guess, trying to increase understanding in the community about what the request is about. And the City of Pell River governance system doesn't really allow us to proceed with without the community being behind us because any decision any council made could be reversed at the next election. So right. what we're looking for is a consensus building process that may take one year or two years or ho- hopefully it doesn't take that long, but where we build consensus around what to do. And right now we're not there. So we're very divided in our community about right now about what to do with that. But I think the next steps might be to start talking about things that are a little more fun, like potential <laughs> new names and things people might love, right? Yeah. So I think if we could um, have a whole bunch of ideas put into a pot and all of us start talking about what's in that pot and all those different ideas and we get some favorites from the community, the community decides what the favorites are, we might see the tide swing. We might find something that we might love a little more. And one major concern of electors is rising taxes. Do you have any ideas on how taxation can be held without cutting current services? So our cost drivers are wages, maintenance of equipment, utility bills, and the way we do our, like, you know, the way we allocate our resources, right? So if we can modernize some processes and if we can lower our energy bills, that's one way. Right. And that also lowers our carbon footprint and helps us get to uh, a net. We're at net zero already in the city, but it has. To, but a lot of it's um, because we'd set aside parklands. Right. So once we run out of credits from that parklands, our actual operations have to be net zero to maintain net zero, which is the goal of all the cities by a certain time. Right. So if we're to get to net zero that doesn't require us to give up parklands every single year to stay there, <laughs> we're going to need to um, be much more energy efficient in how we do our business. It also lowers our cost right. overall. So I think um, pursuing greener energy and energy efficiency and weight. The other thing is we, we, we cart our waste at a considerable cost of transport very far away. Mm-hmm. So if we can do a solid waste plan that doesn't cart stuff all over the place, that downsizes our cost. So I think we need to find greener, uh, more sustainable ways of doing our services and our business that can cut our long-term like operational costs, right? Mm-hmm. Fuel and things like that. Yeah. And that also happens to be what's required for global warming as well. So there's that. And then there's increasing our uh, walking and biking and good public transit and alleviating a lot of the traffic on the roads (laughs) so that we're not wearing our roads up so fast. We need to perhaps run a few things and maybe a little bit differently. So some of our things are being like our harbors, for example. We're not very service oriented in the way we we run our harbors right now and there's an awful lot of infrastructure maintenance falling through the cracks yeah. because of the way we're structured. So the users aren't, aren't finding um, 
a voice or, or a way to to get results from when they provide communication in and it's not a user-friendly system we don't have anyone on the docks most of the time <laughs> so i think um we need to look at restructuring some of that and maybe um having users help us come up with a management strategy that's gonna not degrade our infrastructure as fast and maybe gets us better service for the same buck would be another way of doing it right yeah interesting the proposed spending for the new emergency services building is another consensus contentious topic right now what are your feelings on the new the new building so i don't think it's a good a good thing that our building is not seismically sound so if we have a seismic event our emergency workers are going to be in the middle of an emergency and unable to help the rest of us and so that's a bad situation i don't i don't think we want to stay that way um having said that um i do understand that we're not finished building our wastewater treatment plant yet and we don't know our total financial position and that's a pretty uncomfortable situation to be in when you go out and ask folks just hey can we have permission to borrow more money even though we're not quite sure where we're going to land with this other one yet yeah <laughs> so um i actually voted against having that referendum i was the only one on the council <laughs> oh really <laughs> so I was against having the referendum at this time because I thought it was unfair to ask people at this time this question. Not because I don't think that we need a new fire hall, but because I think we're not the people just don't want us to ask them right now. Right. And I'm a kind of a firm supporter of that in order to do nothing, you don't need to have a referendum. The purpose for a referendum or going to the people is to say, hey, we believe you're in support of this. Did we get it right? Mm. And we are not there. I don't believe people are supportive of this yet. So lots of folks haven't really bought into the idea that we need a new fire department. So we haven't done our we haven't done our communication due diligence on that. We haven't explained that well enough. And um, the wastewater treatment plant is not finished yet, and it is scheduled to be finished in the next you know we're supposed to be mostly operational by christmas and then fully completed by spring we'll have an accurate projection of what that's going to look like people might be a lot more favorable about okay so now we know what that looks like we can consider something else right. i think that would have been a smarter way to go okay affordable housing do you think council has a bigger role to play in the affordable housing issue right now yeah. So I don't think affordable housing decisions being made by people who aren't here in our town are, are working out so great. So I think a little more local um, control over how we're doing affordable housing would be good. One of the ways to do that is a housing um, authority. And I think um, we've done all the studies we need to, and we've been trying everything the way BC Housing's doing it. And we're struggling with that for a number of reasons. Um, we, we just talked to the Attorney General in, in at UBCM on just last week. Uh, yeah. And we asked for um, money to do restorative justice along with our complex care and our transit you know we get we can house people we can get wraparound complex care services we got some announcements for funding for that a couple million a year is going to go into complex care here in Powell river 
Hmm. We haven't quite got that up and launched and running yet. Vancouver Coastal Health is posting vacancies and they're trying to staff up and we're going to do this complex care model. Okay. Um, but on the other side is, is, you know, what people are calling catch and release justice system that's not in our control either. Right. So our RCMP are frustrated, our neighborhoods are frustrated, and we, we've got, um, con- you know, folks working to help folks who are in the transitional housing frustrated. There's no way to rely on the current justice system to help us in that regard. So we asked the Attorney General for, hey, we got this complex care, we got the housing, and we're still struggling. Can we get some alternative justice in our community? Can we maybe get some justice circles, the restorative Restorative, restorative justice, perhaps? And well, he said, well, what would you need for that? Well, we, we need trained people that know how to do restorative justice and are available and can do it. So we need some training dollars and we need some people dollars. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, maybe. So we're going to write up a proposal to, to, for a pilot and how that would look and put some mon- numbers on it and see if we can't get the Attorney General to, to back us up with some justice systems that are funded but directly from the Attorney General's office and not, or however they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and are not reliant upon the, you know, the federal criminal legal system. Or our current courts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. And actually, that leads into the next question I had, which was about crime. So you've kind of covered that because... Oh, I have uh, another point on that. Okay. Sorry. How so while it? we were at UBCM, we, um, I was listening to all of the social media and the things available for what's concerning the communities. And I was like, well, do you want to... They're mad or they're upset that certain people didn't show up the meeting. And I'm thinking, well, but we already have meetings with... Everybody, we have this thing called a community action team that was set up for the opioid crises. I sit on it. Councillor Hathaway sits on it. Um, Councillor Southcott sits on it. We got Vancouver Coastal Health there. Even the folks from Vancouver on the policy side. Hmm. We have um, the police are there. The fire department's there. The ambulance folks are there. The folks that run our um, op- our opioid uh, harm reduction center, they're there. We got. The, an organization called uh, Sustain, which is people who are, you know, trying to su- get a sustainable or way of handling drug use in, as a, you know, and help all the people that are involved in that. Yeah. So they get apps for safety and not using alone and they check in with one another and they, they do needle sweeps and they do, like, they do a lot. Okay. And so they're sitting there. Yeah. We got folks who are in the transitional housing sitting there. We got the folks who are doing all the naloxone training sitting there. We've got, um, lift on that organization, you know, and we meet once a month and we try to coordinate and we try to solve problems. We try to come up with pro- projects to fix stuff. And uh, I'm like, well, why don't they know that? And then I ding, ding, ding. They don't know that because we don't have affected neighborhood people there. Mm. Right? Yeah. So I'm thinking we need to get the agreement of CAT to extend an invitation to representatives from affected neighborhoods so they can be involved in that regular conversation that we're having and solve problems with us. And my last actual question for you was the name change, and you've already discussed that. So with that, and we're actually at time. 
So thank wow. you so much. So all my chatting didn't put us over time. No, we're right <laughs> at time. So, so thank you so much for coming and spending the time with me and allowing listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Anytime. This was so much fun. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And that concludes this episode of Coastal Currents with Erin Reed, with Cindy Elliott as the honored guest. If you'd like some more information about Cindy, you can view her information and platform as well as her contact information on her website, which is cindyelliot.ca. That's C-I-N-D-Y-E-L-L-I-O-T-T dot C-A. Until next time, this is Erin Reed. Thank you for listening to Coastal Currents with Erin Reed. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. For more interviews, visit coastalcurrents.ca or follow us on Facebook at Coastal Currents with Erin Reed. Thanks again for listening.